0: This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the CFO Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Wiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate and diverge in divergent ideas for our future. Agent Sakib Sheikh is a software engineer at Microsoft and the project lead of Seeing AI, a mobile accessibility application that narrates the world around you making use of the camera and LiDAR technology available on iPhones. Central to this system is an artificial intelligence used to interpret images or visual information and describe them using sound. While seeing AI also has tactile features, the act of converting visual information for verbal interpretation is at the precipice of what AI is capable of, since our sensory systems are incredibly complicated and difficult to replicate. I wanted to know more about how this powerful and liberating application came into existence, and Sakib Sheikh as one of the project's co-founders, was able to talk to us. Joining me on this discussion is agent David Olney, who is a blind academic from the University of Adelaide and a user of this amazing technology. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. And I'm joined today on AI Agents with Agent Sir Kibb. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you very
1: much for having me. Pleasure to be here.
2: Would you be able to explain to our listeners how and why you started seeing the potential of technology and what convinced you that you know technology was the thing you wanted to you know, sort of commit time and effort toward.
1: For me, it started quite at an early age, in some ways before computer technology. To, but so I lost my sight when I was seven, and when I went for uh, to a school for the blind, I was taught to type on a typewriter. So this was quite a big thing back then in the nineties to be able to type and produce something that I could show my teachers, show my parents, and it opened up this world because it meant that from reading and writing in Braille to being able to type things that others could read, that was really empowering. And maybe that was my first glimpse. But then throughout my schooling, I always liked writing stories and you know, uh, woodwork and craft. And when someone taught me how to program just for fun, it was like, wow, this is another way to create. But I also realized that this is a way that I could make tools to help myself and other people who have similar challenges and that actually technology can be this great equalizer that can actually, as I say, level the playing field um, and fill in those gaps between what someone is capable of doing and what they're able to do. So there's a long journey between there and now, but it's definitely been a fun ride.
2: Yeah, I had the similar experience when I learned to type. So I'm a little bit older than you in that I think I learned to type in about 1980 at the age of nine and right the way through high school and then through my undergrad uh, studies in the 90s i was literally recording a rough draft of any written work onto one audio tape then doing the tidied version on a second audio tape and then just sitting there and typing it at about you know 50 words a minute with as few errors as possible to be able to generate my own hard copies to hand up at uni. So even in the early nineties, when everyone around me was still handwriting and tutors were complaining about their illegible work here, I was already handing up this type of thing. And at least it gave me some sense of, okay, this is pretty primitive technology, but it's well on the way to changing things. So for me, the next big leap was 1997 when JAWS for Windows finally got the point of being genuinely useful rather than an expensive toy. When did you first encounter sort of screen readers and and your software that genuinely made computers accessible?
1: So I think very basic screen readers in 93, but then yeah, 97 was the same year that I switched okay. using Windows.
2: And that yeah, was a, just another amazing. step forward. And, and I still remember sort of getting, I think, version... I don't know, three point something or four that came on four floppy disks. And sitting there with my brand new $5,000 compact laptop, loading JAWS on one floppy disk at a time and everyone holding their breath because no one I knew that was helping me had ever loaded a screen reader on a laptop before. And it was a mystery as to whether it was going to (laughs) work.
1: Wow, yeah. and I, I remember many of those moments too. Like... In many ways, it was the laptop I got when I was around 13 to be able to do my schoolwork that enabled me to learn to program, because unlike other hobbies I had, which required adult supervision and special arrangements, I found that programming was just something I could do on my laptop in my bedroom, and I think that was one of the things that got me really hooked onto it, and then, you know, that creativity of being able to make things.
2: Yeah. This is a thing like I sort of gave up doing maths and science because at the time, none of the technology was available yet. So I sort of became the humanities guy. So it sounds like the wonderful thing that happened in your case, the technology lined up just at the time where your passion didn't have to be curbed. You know, the technology and your passion could be made to work together. So how do you get from a little bit of programming on a first laptop to thinking up an amazing app that has multiple channels doing multiple things that must be bouncing off multiple servers using so many different kinds of machine learning and just processing huge amounts of data. How do you take each of the steps or is that really just a question of time and technology improving?
1: A bit of both, I think when you're living your life you make one decision at a time and I'm fortunate that my path led me here from you know that's school to studying computer science at university to going and doing artificial intelligence as a master's and then eventually joining microsoft being there 15 years now and but even there I always kept accessibility as a hobby I thought I don't want to be the guy who does stuff for other people with disabilities, and I wanted to prove myself as a mainstream engineer. But then I kind of hit my 30s and realized that, you know, I've proven myself in that particular way now. And actually, there's so much more I can do to help the next generation. It sort of clicked that, you know, I can now be the one creating the solutions in the same way that I was enabled by the people who made the screen readers or the braille technology or. Uh, so much more, it's kind of hit me that I'd, I'd achieved that first goal of proving I could be a good engineer at Microsoft. And now my next goal was how do I help as many people in as big a way as possible? And, and so there was a hackathon. So this was a one week where the CEO said to everyone, you can spend a week doing whatever you feel is valuable. And I thought, this is my moment to do my best work regardless of any constraints and that's where i started bringing my different areas of my background as an engineer as a blind person as someone who'd always had a passion for artificial intelligence all together to create an app which was the very first inklings of seeing ai and then from there you know it won some prizes got some attention But of course, with any of these things, you need a good team. And as it got more attention and I met more people who were able to bring, you know, all the different skills to the table, we got to 2016, where I ended up being on stage with the CEO, Satya Nadella, at our Build conference. And we got a funded team to go and work on this. And we were able to release the iPhone app to the world for free, I must say. And yeah, been going going with seeing ever since, adding more and more listening to our customers who, you know, are the, like you said at the beginning, it's all about not just technology, but also how does it empower people to do more? So the the LIDAR feature you mentioned is very much the latest evolution of that.
2: Yeah, it's kind of incredible. Like I was trying to remember what the first version of seeing AI was like in 2016. And then went, hang on, that would have been running on my iPhone six. And from memory, at that point, anytime you turned an app like seeing AI on, you felt the thing get as warm as a coffee cup in your hand in real time <laughs> as the processors obviously went crazy and everything. I
1: know, yeah.
2: <laughs> and yet now the amazing thing is running LiDAR, the phone barely heats up. You know, I think when I was playing with LiDAR, it was using about a percent of battery for every minute of LiDAR as I've been playing around with it. I'm like, that's not too bad that the improvements, it's really hard to look back when you're constantly living in the moment of the current iteration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is just the perfect moment where artificial intelligence has been getting better in terms of the pure technology, but then as you say, also the GPUs and the chips and the power of these supercomputers we carry around in our pockets.
2: A question that I don't even know if I really have the technical language to ask. So you might have to play kind of interpreter here. But when I think about it, that I take a photo of something and it goes off to the cloud. And that way, I guess the cloud has more and more photos to look at from people all around the world using AI. Does it look at those photos as like a big bundle of them all together, or does it do an initial sweep and go, okay, this is a photo of a footpath with a building on one side and a road on the other. So that's this kind of environment. It's an outdoor environment where a person needs information about walking down the footpath. Is it a case of sort of a photo is triaged and then, you know, assessed from a more specific way or what, what does AI do with a photo?
1: Wow, a bunch of great questions there.
2: Yeah, sorry if they're too big for a whole lifetime.
1: (laughs) No, no, it's all good. So one important thing is, okay, two important things I should say, is wherever possible, we try to take advantage of the power of your phone to do whatever we can locally, whether that is to give you really good guidance experience to capture a good photo, or whether it is to give you the answer so when you're recognizing currency, reading text, or even doing recognition of your friends, those things are all done on the phone. So nothing goes off your phone at all.
2: And that's one of the big changes from 2016 to now, isn't it? How many things have been able to be localized?
1: Exactly. More and more has become local. And that just, yeah, is better in many ways. Yeah. But then there you can do much more powerful things in the cloud because the cloud has way more power. So for more complex tasks like describing an entire image on the scene channel, we will still go to the cloud. Now, the second thing is when we send images to the cloud, we do not keep them. We use them to give the user information, but then we're not storing that. So we separate the training of the AI models from the usage of the models to describe an image. Okay. And so to answer your question about how the AI works, we have large data sets of images which have been labeled as we, we call it. And this could be some a human or multiple humans often describing what's in the image and whereabouts things are in the image. And that is used on aggregate, huge amounts of data, thousands and thousands of images are fed into a system which detects the patterns. And it says, aha, I detected all the things that are called dog have these things in common, and all the things that are chair or table have these things in common. I'm simplifying um, a lot, but
2: that's good because, like yeah. I said, I'm the humanities guy. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> but then you, but then you know, at the at the other end, you get these really cool experiences. So one of my favorites. So it's hard to choose one. Actually, I really like the lidar, but there's the explore by touch feature, which lets you run your finger over the touchscreen, and it's yeah. a flat touchscreen, both using haptics and audio you're able to hear whereabouts different items are in the image. And that's just so cool. And that's enabled by this cloud processing of identifying what's in the image and whereabouts it is.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing where part of what you realize using apps like Seeing AI is it's constantly giving the user a reason to push their neural plasticity a bit further. Because this rectangular piece of glass in our hands can only do certain things. But the more things it can do, the more ways we have to be able to interpret what it's doing so yeah when you get the haptic feedback and the you know perfect example of this is with the lidar you know when i walk out my front door onto our you know, balcony in our building and walk towards the staircase point it at the ground i get a constant vibration in the phone once it picks up the staircase the vibration changes in this thing as i can only describe as a bit like a corrugated ripple and it's like oh there's the top of the stairs now, I've got my cane and I don't need the LIDAR to do it, but I just get a big smile from playing with the LIDAR on the way to the staircase. And If I was somewhere really noisy and weird, and I wanted an extra set of information where I could point it a little bit ahead of my cane, pointing the LIDAR to just get that data of, is the ground flat, one step in front of my cane, and how that is going to be presented to my hand via how the phone vibrates. It's just an amazing thing for you constantly, I guess, you know, instead of, what would it be, it's almost a form of in, you know, intelligence augmentation where we're taking the f- person further with how the device can extend them.
1: Absolutely. And I love your description of using the LIDAR on the stairs. And I'd love to talk a bit about the LIDAR, but maybe just take a step back and describe a bit about what seeing AI can do all up. I realized we didn't touch on that, but it's a talking camera app. So you hold up your phone and point it at things and it can help with reading things, recognizing people or colors or tell you how much light there is in the room so that people tell us, for example, a friend's come around and left all the lights on. So they'll help you turn the lights off or yep. um, yeah, recognize the people around you or, and sorry, I have so much to tell. Like a good story there is someone's actually been, a teacher's been using it to know which children are entering the classroom, which is something I never would have envisaged when you came up with this.
2: That's a brilliant idea. Again, I often use the light detector when I'm in an unfamiliar hotel room. I'm like, okay, there are light switches, but how have housekeeping left the lights? Yeah. The moment the switch is up or down, it's a completely useless bit of information. (laughs) So suddenly, seeing IA means, okay, I want darkness because it's sleep time, dark. I want to be awake, well, okay put the lights on, that way the world knows I'm awake.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and we really see like, we're always looking at what do the customers tell us, what are these little stories, what are the challenges, and then how can we leverage emerging technologies to solve these problems, and then also show the possibilities of AI, because there's just so much exciting going on in this space.
2: I'm assuming that handwriting must be one of the huge challenges for AI, like, you know, seeing AIs, you know, tinkered with it, a lot of the other apps in this field have tinkered with it too. And I can imagine that that makes a lot of programmers want to scream.
1: Yeah, and again, it's all comes down to this idea of recognizing patterns. So we show the AI system, many, many images of handwritten text with the label of what does the text actually say? And it's remarkably accurate for uh, what I would have expected that, Yes. Yeah, there's a challenge in Seeing AI, you pointed at some handwriting and take a photo. And then, yeah, with a the reason it does a pretty good job of um, reading that out. And we launched that a few years ago at Christmas time. And then we got a flood of emails, we never planned it that way. But it was like, yes, I can read all my Christmas cards for the first yeah. time in years.
2: Wow, which is just a, a wonderful outcome. Yeah, listeners, sorry, I should have actually, you know, described what Seeing AI does at the beginning. I forget that when I'm excited, I need to explain why you lot should be excited. I think you would have worked it out. And Suckab did a wonderful job of explaining why you should all be excited. And more importantly, if you've got iPhones, go out and download this and play with it. Get a sense of you know, what we're talking about and why we are like kids in a candy store when this stuff works better. Going, we've got another way to get more insight into what's going on in the world around us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Go and download Seeing AI in the app store.
2: Mm.
0: And that's Android and uh, iOS as well.
1: At the present day, it's
2: iPhone only. Oh, is it right? Yeah, My just bad. because so many blind people use iPhone because voiceovers is baked in. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. So Tim, would you like to ask them some sort of more specific AI well, questions? Because yeah, you've got better questions than me.
0: <laughs> well, I was interested in, In so far we've described seeing AI as a fairly analytic process. It's it's very, uh, pat, like it, it is a pattern finding program. You have these kind of first level uh, interpretations of things that are meant—it's meant to be very highly reliable—and you know, it's amazing that something like that can tell the difference between a, a vase and a glass, considering that, you know, from a computer's perspective, it, 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 it doesn't use either of the things, and, and, and they are kind of kind of similar. It, it, uh, is there a, a path forward for seeing AI to have like a, a kind of second level interpretation, not just what it what what is it, but what does it mean?
1: That's a really good question. So there, there's certainly A lot of research going on into how do you generate a caption, how do you recognize images, and one aspect of that is what is the, I, I met a researcher who was thinking about what is the emotion of a scene. So the example they had given was you can give a factual description of a man carrying a boy, but today if that is a fireman carrying a child out of a burning building, that is quite a different. That's awesome. um, yeah, uh, so there are definitely people working on this. Um, I'd say that there is some very small amount that AI can do today, but that's going to get better over time.
2: And this is a case where once again, the way your team and the expertise within your team has grown since 2016, this would be a case where when someone gets the beginning of the breakthroughs in those areas, then you know you work out, well, how do we maybe put this in a new channel or add it to an existing channel within Seeing AI as sort of a beta feature for people to test?
1: Exactly. Is this We think of it as this um, self-fulfilling cycle where we are talking to different researchers about what the needs of the community are, and of course talking to the community to understand their needs. And then as different researchers come out with very early models, we can test those ideas with our customers who are often quite early adopters, even if they're not tech savvy, because the uh, people with disabilities are often got a lot more to gain from this technology. So you have that, that nice little cycle.
2: Yeah, we need it to be a tool, not a toy. Yeah. Exactly, because yes. we use it as a tool, we're more than happy to tinker with it to see, can it add value in our day? And if it can, then we keep tinkering. So if we look at sort of the development path of seeing AI, in contrast, listeners, there've been a multitude of other apps that have tried to go down a similar path. And the vast majority of ones, when I went from my iPhone 6 to my 10, and then my 10 to my 12 Pro, I deleted off the old dead versions where at a certain point the development stopped because they just didn't keep getting breakthroughs. They didn't keep adding value to my day. And if they couldn't add value, well, I'm guessing it was the same for most other blind users. So part of what makes seeing AI so remarkable and so valuable is in its, well, five years now, we're in 2021. There's never been a point where I haven't opened it up and gone, what's it going to do with this situation? Even if I don't, need it to do something remarkable i still want to know what it can do and i want to be part of helping to put you know images in the learning system to help the system get better Mm. and that kind of commitment over time that you know microsoft and sakib's team are so committed to making this work and the blind community are committed to using it because they go okay even if it's not perfect it's always doing something that is at least interesting and more often than not adds value and that's actually quite a hard thing to do over an extended period of time when technology is changing so quickly you know if you look at all the things that went extinct in this area of apps seeing ai is one of the only ones that is actually growing and getting better rather than looking like the dodo
0: well there's a clear development path right
2: <laughs> absolutely
1: <clears throat> thank you so much for saying that and i think the we have The new channel, so we have different channels for different tasks and the world channel, as we call it, really points the way to a potential future for seeing AI, which I'm very excited about, leveraging augmented reality, which um, I could potentially talk a little bit more about.
2: Oh, absolutely. Because of course, this is where LiDAR fits. And my great hope is that within a year or so, rather than having to point the phone at things to be using the LiDAR, I'll be wearing some sort of smart glasses, where for me it will be more about having speakers front and back of ears and a LiDAR sensor in the bridge of the nose. So the LiDAR is permanently looking wherever I'm looking and the audio is permanently around me, but I'm still hearing the world. So you know, at the moment I'm seriously thinking about going out and buying a set of Bose Tempos, you know, the sort of updated version of the frames, just because the audio is now so much better.
1: Yeah, they're really cool because they don't cover your ears. Oh, and for this new experience spatial audio is a key part of wearing some kind of headphones that don't cover your ears is key. So what we can do here is people might have heard of augmented reality in the media as, you know, maybe you have games which are showing you virtual objects around you. But for us, what we realized is for someone who's blind, actually, what we want to do is as you look around, we're going to remember what's around you. We're going to use the AI to recognize those things. And then we're going to pin them in place so you're going to see little tags around you on the so virtual tags on real objects is really bringing together this virtual and real world mm. and then because you're wearing the headphones you hear the sound emanating from the objects so it's going to say chair from the chair and now if you want to sit on that chair you can place a beacon and you're going to hear this like glowing sound on the, coming from the chair so you can walk towards it and In the first few days after we launched, there was a nice tweet which said it was like hearing, seeing with your ears, and that they were able to walk through the center of a doorway by placing a beacon on it without touching either side of the door. And again, love hearing from customers, so that was so cool for me yeah and I, it's all yeah that's all based on the lidar
2: yeah the chair thing is like i'm sticking a beacon on that whereas the, i hadn't thought of the doorway because i'm so used to just using the cane and the point of the cane is to find the edge of the doorway so there again i default to the old technology of a stick
1: and the stick or the cane you know that really matters because that is still going to be your primary way of getting around yeah. but i think of it as augmenting your awareness so we always want the human to be in control it must be this AI human partnership but we give you more and more information more and more tools yeah. to be even more productive maybe that you you know you, have, you can think about even more same things at the same time now
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. This really is the intelligence augmentation path that I think the general public don't really understand what this means, whereas disabled people are beginning to recognise that, yeah, they'll be at the centre and the technology will more seamlessly enable them to do more and have more data simultaneously. So, you know, last year I tried, actually two years ago, I tried one of the little wearable sonar devices you know, pinned on the top of my T-shirt. And it was good, but it's just too clunky. LiDAR in comparison, you just see the massive leap forward. You know, and once you combine LiDAR, then with the ability to have 3D sound, you start going, okay, two years and we've gone from an entertaining toy to something that helps you navigate an unfamiliar environment. Quite a remarkable transition.
1: Yeah, can't wait to see where we are in a couple more years' time.
2: Yeah. With LiDAR, how long do you think it will be before enough people have got a lidar sensor that you're getting the sort of huge amounts of data you need to push the rate of development like you know do you feel that within a year's time every new phone pretty much above a certain price point will have a lidar sensor and the amount of data you're getting to be able to process will just go through the roof or
1: it's hard to know and again we always separate teaching the system from the usage of the system but I have no idea about the plans of hardware manufacturers, mm-hmm. but you know I'm optimistic that if lidar proves valuable to the hardware makers, then you know the next generation of iPhones and other devices will start incorporating it, not just in the pro models, maybe maybe in all models, and then you know the prices of the old ones will come down, and they'll have that ripple effect of it being available to more
2: people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's the thing. If we look at something like the Bose smart glasses we were mentioning a minute ago, they're designed to make people happy on their push bike, you know, listen to cool music while cycling. Now, for a whole pile of us who are blind, we're going to get a pretty good tool and maybe we were never part of, you know, the design idea, but in conjunction with the other technology we're using, we can patch these things together and get an amazing response. And that's exactly. deliberate things and accidental things being flexible enough to glue them together, so to speak.
1: Absolutely. And I even find the blind community, there's this nice phrase I like, which is designed for one extent to many. And you often hear that these, these little solutions, which were developed for a specific niche audience, for example, people who are blind or other disabilities, they then go on to be just things that are, part of the mainstream so if you look at the phone in your pocket something like I don't know Siri or Alexa it, the speech recognition speech synthesis uh, the touchscreen the on-screen keyboard the text messages I could keep going there's a whole list of technologies in your phone which came about because someone with a disability and someone with the ability to create came together and so, yeah, I, I, to your point, there's all these new technologies which we're pushing the boundaries, but they become part of the mainstream.
2: Yeah, it's a bit like a Venn diagram. Someone does something, someone does something else, and someone creative finds the overlap and then exploits the overlap and makes the overlap bigger and then you know more useful. And then we get a whole new niche. Yeah, you know, you are talking about technologies that which are designed for effectively
0: masses of people and then have uh, even more specific use cases for uh, uh, uh small small sections of our societies some is small small is accurate right well
1: maybe the other way around those are examples of technologies which were made for uh, one person or to solve a niche problem but With, then became part um, of the mainstream
0: right 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 Kind of conversely, uh, is is the I know that you said that you've localized a lot of the AI functions uh, to the phone, but the the app itself isn't necessarily targeted towards specific countries or cultures. You know, is there a part of the AI that's sort of uh, homogenizing um, interpretations uh, a- across the, the the world for for visually impaired people?
1: So, I think. It's important that the data sets we use for training be diverse. And we have a number of upcoming projects, which I can't say too much about. But And looking at that even further, but funny, you know, like in terms of localizations, of course, the app is available in, I think, 16 languages now. But then also, reckon an easy way to describe this, we recognize a whole bunch of currencies which re- require taking photos specific to each country. But then it also goes to the objects. Are very different across the world. Mm. Um, what you know, what, so then there may be an object which looks very different in one part of the world to another, like a building, a building entrance, or a funny example someone showed me once was a toy car. We know what that looks like until you see a sort of a homemade toy car, very crafty from Asia or Africa. And so that diversity of data really matters as we serve our customers around the world.
2: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I thought about with that, just as you were talking about it is say, imagine how different a church in the Midwest of the U S looks like mm-hmm. versus a cathedral in England versus, you know, a Buddhist temple in Thailand versus, you know, a Hindu temple in India. They're all places of worship. They're all buildings, but there's so many differences in that building. Mm. So I guess the thing of you know, cultural difference means you've got to be able to go, hang on, that's that, this is this, but they've all got something in common. They're all places where people congregate. So the the interesting thing here of the use case might be similar, but the characteristics are very different. So this is sort of comes, I think, to Tim's question of interpretation. Trying to get that interpretation right must be an amazing process to be a part of.
1: It is, and we're continuing to talking to people of how do we do even better at that? Because the, the realistic fact is that a lot of these data sets used for trading AI, many of them are more Western-centric, but we are conscious of that and looking at you know, how do we push the envelope there to make sure that they are culturally diverse.
2: And that's the great thing, I guess, you know, being that you're part of such a, you know, a big dispersed organization, the cultural variety just in the programming team, and then the people you can reach out to who are getting the current breakthroughs, means that anywhere someone's got a good idea or is enthusiastic about this, there's a chance that their voice will eventually be heard in the development process.
1: Absolutely, and when you have um, a company like Microsoft, you know, with you know, billions of customers, then this is something we're at the uh, very much thinking of across the whole company.
0: It's interesting, you, you, in some ways, you've kind of reverse engineered creativity, because there's all of this creative expression out in the world, as in the the various different ways that we could build a place of worship um, it, it is architecture is, is a creative process. And that has to then be based in patterns or, or interpreted um, in, a, in a way where you, you, you kind of remove some of the um, anomalies, I guess, to be able to uh, accurately I, I, I identify. When that, that
1: comes down to summarizing, though, I'd say, in many ways, to summarize, we have to identify. temporarily ignore the nuance for yeah. efficiency, but I do believe there is a space for digging deep into one thing, like more technically saying, you know, what is the attention of the system? and. We don't do that today. I don't know of any AI systems that do, but this idea of focusing on a particular aspect of an image of an object. And we do that a little bit with the explore by touch where you get a description of an image and then you can run your finger to see what's in the image. But I can also see a world where we believe it's really important that while we summarize, we for example, describe what the user does rather than tell them what to do. So yep. that the user is always the person in the driving seat in control. And, yeah, you know, maybe the future of that is, you know, we, we give the user the information that enables them to make the judgment or paint the picture in their mind yeah, the rather than just
2: describing. Rather than on board, and that's a thing, like more information means we can do more interpretation. It's just, so that again, that's the other side of this. It's amazing. The more information that seeing AI and the phone together can send towards the user, the more the user has to put practice into how am I going to effectively use this? How do I become the best interpreter of more information? And that's why to me, it's sort of this thing of intelligence augmentation and enhancing neuroplasticity. The two things are happening simultaneously. And sort of part of the the development thing here, I assume, would be you can't, in a sense, move faster than the neuroplasticity can normalize the new activity.
1: Right. And it's, like you say, giving the user information that is in a familiar, doesn't require them to learn too much at once. Mm. And it also doesn't take up too much of your, you know, ES-based, let's call it, because audio is this sequential medium where one word at a time. Yep. So you sort of prioritize what you say and sense. then use sound effects and stuff like that so mm-hmm. more information can be conveyed. And then you, this is one of the reasons we have these channels in seeing AI. We switch channels to say what's your current interest because in an image there could be so much that's of interest to you, sorry, so much information, but mm-hmm. only one thing will be of interest to you at in terms of what you want to do right now.
2: So part of the development from the human side is always okay we've got these things that are definitely important to convey but what is the best order to convey them in? So simply the testing on that side of cognitively what works best for humans who struggle to hold more than seven things in the head at a time simply because we've never needed to hold more than seven. So if it's got to be be in the right order.
1: Exactly and it's also the wording you use so very early on we were creating this intelligent document scanner where we tell you which parts of a sheet of paper are in view so that you can move the phone and capture a a full image of the document. And now the obvious thing was, oh, it's going to have a personality like a human and it's going to say, hey, move left a bit, move right, back, back, Mm -hmm. take a photo. And what we found is if you do that People just were listening to the phone as though it was instructing them exactly what to do. But instead, if you gave them information to interpret, to consider, the results were way better. So if we say, um, can't see the left edge right now, that's really the same thing as saying um, move left, but it's putting the user in the driving seat and making them adjust accordingly. And it's, really it's powerful. little things like that that make the difference.
2: Yeah, that's really powerful because I remember the first version of KNFB Reader where the kind of attempt to get you to get the picture right, to take the picture of the document, drove me mad. Because it was telling me what to do, but not in a way where I got a result. And it wasn't giving me information that I could interpret in a useful way. Whereas seeing AI, again, one of the key differences, it gave you enough information to put you in control of what you thought you should do to solve the problem. So this- Absolutely. Of, yeah. Constantly trickling information in a way that says, you make a decision, you increase your expertise at using this tool. is such an interesting contrast in the underlying design strategy, which again, until we were talking today, I'd never thought of why, yeah, again, when I was talking about the apps that have died, another reason why seeing AI goes from strength to strength. And so many of its competitors, you know, went the way of the dinosaurs without the help of an asteroid. Within
1: seeing AI, it's all about empowering people rather than, a lot of people think about AI, about, oh, we're going to replace humans and da, da, da. But no, it's all about enabling humans. So the two have got to live together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, And to me, that is sort of, That's such a wonderful major point to be at near the end of our interview that, hey, at the end of the day, this is all about empowering the person. The AI is only as useful as what a person can interpret.
0: Well, you're using a system that is designed to be, I guess, like quite highly reliable, um, but we know from creative uses of AI that sometimes they can do things that are quite surprising, things that, that they're not meant to do. Do you have kind of like an anecdote or a favorite story of, of, of maybe something that you know maybe wasn't quite right from the app's perspective, It was actually quite interesting from an AI perspective? Was it, did, did it ever produce um, a, a description or something that was fascinating?
1: The interesting thing here is... If we can just speak to your point uh, a little bit more broadly, some of the techniques we use here from the AI side are we really optimize for precision over recall because mm. we're processing live camera frames all the time. So wherever possible, we optimize for really high precision because you know if it's going to be several frames later and you're waiting half a second, three quarters of a second doesn't matter, um, especially when you consider the um, amount of time it takes to speak something. And then on top of that. Um, it's about what do you, we, we tell our users about, you know, AI can be inaccurate, but then we make sure the language or the way we convey it also um, informs the users of, of that. Mm. But, but to your point about the interesting errors, people often told us in the beginning, image captions have got much better over time. The latest generation this year in particular are really quite remarkable at describing images, but a few years back, less so. But we found that because you are informing a user who already knows something, your, the description on its own might be really weird, but to the user, it means something. So you say, this is a plate of food. Okay. But (laughs) then I heard from a user who was like, oh yes, I wanted to put a photo on Facebook. And I knew that this was the date when we were on our honeymoon. And I remember taking a photo that I wanted to show of this really fantastic meal we had in Hawaii. And da, da, da. And so I put it on Facebook and that enabled me to know which one it was. And even though the image description was pretty lame, it, was, it served uh, the purpose.
2: Yes. Mm. And that's the key thing. You're adding to the person, not trying to substitute for them. And all it's going to then, provide that extra one or two bits of information to let them go to that next step they couldn't have done without it.
1: And then a remarkable story as well. There was a few years ago the um, hurricane in Puerto Rico. And we got an interesting email from a blind professor who said, Are you seeing AI in the hurricane? I was like, oh my goodness, it's not meant for that. We're, you know. But what he said is he would take pictures and see if there was anything in the way. And it didn't matter what it said, because he knew that he knew the way to get around. He just wanted to know, is there something in the way? And it doesn't matter whether it says it's a dog when it's a tree, it just shows that there's something in the way.
2: Again, it's like, and then he also, looking in front yeah, of, And he
1: took a picture of, which would normally have said a bridge, but the bridge had collapsed. And he took a photo and it just said some water. Oops. And- Then he was able to, uh, and I was like, that's remarkable. Never imagined that. And again, these are very extreme cases. That's not something we'd imagine to be used for every day, but it makes you reflect for sure.
0: Mm. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Sakib. Thank you very much for joining us on AI Agents.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, if anyone's interested to learn more, please do reach out, seeingai at
0: microsoft.com.
2: Thank you, Sukib. Thank you, Tim. And thank you, listeners.
0: You can find more information for Seeing AI at the link in the episode description. And of course, download the app to experience the functionality and help the system grow. We encourage you to send feedback about the application to help improve the systems that enable humans to transcend their limitations with intelligence augmentation. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.